Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Venovenous extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO, may provide life-saving respiratory support in patients with refractory pulmonary failure. However, ECMO is a complex, invasive therapeutic modality with both benefits and drawbacks, warranting careful consideration of which patients are indicated for this intervention. Moreover, pharmacokinetic parameters are altered by the ECMO circuit, which may necessitate a change in the management of key medications, such as sedatives and antimicrobials. Pharmacist Mei Zhang reviews primary literature and pragmatic tools to guide patient selection, highlighting key pharmacokinetic properties that affect medication dosing in ECMO. I want to take us back to 1971, when a patient was admitted to the hospital after a bad car accident. Over the next few days, he would develop what they called at that time shock lung syndrome. And despite the use of the best medical therapies, by day six, the patient was dying and the team had tried everything else. With no other options left to them, they turned to a new technology called extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO. And within a few days of initiating this new ECMO therapy, the team was able to reverse that shock lung syndrome. Since that first successful incidence, ECMO technology has come a long way, and we've seen it become an important tool in severe respiratory failure, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. But like all good things, ECMO comes with its own costs and considerations, and so, so it's a balance that we have to weigh carefully in these patients when we're considering it. By the end of this presentation today, I hope you'll be able to identify those patients who might benefit from initiation of venovenous ECMO, and once we do, to describe what pharmacokinetic properties will affect their medication dosing. I then hope you'll be able to apply those properties to select appropriate dosing strategies for key medications like sedatives and antibiotics. So to help us walk through those objectives, we'll be looking at our own patient today, who is CC, a 53-year-old male. CC presents to us with sepsis secondary to community-acquired pneumonia, and he started on antibiotics. Despite these broad-spectrum antibiotics, he continues to worsen and is ultimately admitted to the MICU and intubated. By the end of his first day, CC has developed severe ARDS, or acute respiratory distress syndrome. Throughout his second day, his respiratory status continues to worsen despite use of optimized ARDS management. And by day three, as CC continues to deteriorate, the team places a consult for consideration of VV ECMO. So let's walk through CC's case today and see whether he would benefit from initiation of ECMO, and if he does, what that means for the rest of his management. First, we have to understand what's going on in our patient. So when we think about the pathophysiology of acute respiratory distress syndrome, this occurs when the lung is injured by some kind of insult, like pneumonia in CC. Inflammatory mediators are released, which results in diffuse damage to the alveoli. These alveoli are, now have increased permeability, which allows for the accumulation of this protein-rich fluid, and this accumulation further damages the alveoli. At this point, the alveoli are very fragile and overdistended and can no longer carry out their normal function of gas exchange. And this leads to severe hypoxia and hypercarbia that can cause mortality rates of up to 60% of these patients. 
One of the cornerstones of management for ARDS is mechanical ventilation, which is a process that uses positive pressure to drive gas into these patients' lungs. This can support the respiratory function because it improves their gas exchange and it provides pressure to keep those alveoli open. And although ventilation is a key part of ARDS management, there are also some key issues that can arise with its use. The first of those issues is ventilator-associated lung injury. So we know that in ARDS, the alveoli are very fragile and distended already. And by driving gas into those al alveoli, we can over-distend them and further exacerbate that damage. We try to mitigate this by using lung protective ventilation strategies, meaning that we use lower volumes and lower pressures. But even those reduced volumes and pressures still cause some degree of alveolar stress that can propagate that lung injury. The second issue we see with ARDS and ventilation is refractory hypoxemia and hypercarbia. And this occurs because there's only so much support that we can provide with mechanical ventilation. And sometimes patients are still requiring higher needs that we aren't able to supply with ventilation. So what do we do for those patients who are severely ill, um, but aren't responding enough to ventilation and having this injury? This is where hibunovenous ECMO comes in. So ECMO is an extracorporeal circuit that directly oxygenates and decarboxylates the blood. So we can see here that deoxygenated blood is removed from the patient into this circuit. A pump moves this blood throughout the circuit and it passes through this oxygenator, which adds oxygen and removes carbon dioxide. This freshly oxygenated and decarboxylated blood is then returned to our patient. So we can see that ECMO really allows us to achieve a higher level of gas exchange than we get with mechanical ventilation, and so can be used for those patients who are refractory on the vent. ECMO also bypasses the patient's lungs, which means that it allows us to avoid that further ventilator-associated lung injury. Said though, ECMO does also come with its downsides. It's associated with severe risks, including bleeding, clotting, and the development of new infections. And ECMO is also very resource intensive, um, associated with severe labor increases as well as costs. And so the use of ECMO and ARDS remains something that's controversial, and sometimes we have to carefully weigh those benefits and risks in our patients. To better understand that balance, let's take a look at the randomized evidence that we have for ECMO and ARDS. So to date, there have been four randomized controlled trials that study this question of ECMO's benefit in ARDS. And the first two were conducted in 1979 and 1994. These studies looked at mechanical ventilation alone versus ventilation with ECMO. And they found that ECMO did not have mortality benefit, but did cause increased complications, including bleeding and infection. So the results of these first two trials were a little disappointing, but we have to recall that these trials were conducted decades ago when both ARDS management and ECMO technology really weren't as advanced as we have them today. And so that leaves us with this question, do the results that we see in these trials still apply to our current practice today? Let's turn to the CSER trial, which was conducted in 2009 and better represents some of the practices that we have today. CSER randomized patients with ARDS to conventional management versus referral to ECMO, and they found that the ECMO referral group had decreased death and disability. However, there were some important factors that could have confounded that finding. So one important consideration is that the conventional management group didn't have any standardized ventilation protocol, while the ECMO referral group had a standardized lung protective ventilation strategy. Another difference between these two groups, or something to note, is that the ECMO referral group, of them, 25% didn't even get ECMO, and so they actually improved just on non-ECMO ARDS therapy. So ECMO wasn't the only difference between these two groups, which leaves us asking ourselves the question with whether the improvement we saw in this trial was really due to ECMO alone. 
And that brings us to our Eolia trial in 2018, where we're still trying to answer that central question, does ECMO have mortality benefit in ARDS compared to our conventional therapies? Eolia randomized patients with severe ARDS despite being optimized on the ventilator and using adjunctive ARDS therapies, and patients had to be ventilated less than seven days to be enrolled. Patients had similar baseline characteristics and were randomized to receive ECMO or control, which, which was conventional ARDS management. And unlike the CSER trial, our control group patients did have a standardized ventilation strategy with long protective ventilation. For ethical reasons, patients were allowed to cross over from the control group to the ECMO group if they had refractory hypoxemia, and we saw an impressive 28% of patients cross over. While this is a high rate, it's understandable when you think about how severely ill these patients were. These were the people who weren't responding to any of the other therapies we were giving them and would likely have died, and they were allowed to cross over because the team thought that ECMO would change that outcome. But we also have to keep this crossover rate in mind when we think about our outcomes here, because these crossover patients were still counted as part of the control group, which means that we could dilute any impact that we might have seen with ECMO. For those outcomes, we were looking at a primary endpoint of 60-day mortality, and the authors powered the trial to find an absolute risk reduction of 20%. With our secondary endpoint, the authors looked at treatment failure, which was defined as death in the ECMO group, and crossover to ECMO or death in our control group. Before we dive into those results, I'll note that recruitment was stopped early after the authors passed a futility cutoff. And this meant that even if they achieved 100% recruitment, they wouldn't have been able to achieve their a priori goal of that 20% difference in their primary outcome. But of the patients that they did enroll, these were the findings shown here. So looking at our primary endpoint, at 60, day 60 days, 35% of the ECMO group compared to 46% of the control group had died. And so we see this is really high mortality rates in overall, our overall population, and the ECMO group had a numerical benefit that did not achieve statistical significance with a p-value of 0.09. With our secondary endpoint, treatment failure occurred in 35% of the ECMO group compared to 58% of the control group, and that difference was statistically significant. And finally, thinking about our safety, ECMO was associated with increased bleeding and thrombocytopenia. So based on these results, the authors concluded that ECMO does not significantly decrease mortality in severe ARDS. I wanna take those findings now back to CC and think about how we would apply them given the evidence we have. So remember that this is our 53 year old male with severe ARDS and he's worsening despite optimized management. He's been ventilated for two days so far. And so based on the evidence that you've had so far, do you think CC should be cannulated for VB ECMO? So go ahead and take out your poll everywhere and click where on the arrow you think that um, CC should be cannulated. So it looks like we've got a pretty widespread of answers here. And this is very reasonable given the mixed findings that we had in Eolia. Although Eolia failed to reach its primary endpoint, its interpretation was actually really controversial in the community because Eolia had a lot of potential benefit. We saw in Eolia that there was a high crossover rate from the control group to the ECMO group, which we know could have diluted the impact of the ECMO. And even despite that, the ECMO group had that numerical mortality benefit that was very close to reaching statistical significance. So in cases like this, where there seems to be more going on, it can be useful to look at the data through a different lens, like this post-hoc Bayesian analysis. And to understand the difference between Bayesian versus traditional statistics, we'll talk through the simple example of a coin toss. So let's say we have a coin, and we'll start off assuming that we have 50-50 odds of heads or tails. 
let's say we toss that coin five times and all five times we get a result of heads. Using our traditional or frequentist approach, our prior belief of a 50-50 odds of heads or tails is not affected by those first five results of heads. We keep that fixed prior belief and we assume that if we keep on flipping the coin, over the long term, things will even out and we'll see that 50-50 split of heads or tails. With the Bayesian approach, we also start off with that 50-50 belief of heads or tails, but after those first five results of heads, we update our prior beliefs given this new data. So now we think maybe this is a weighted coin that favors heads, and based on that, we generate a new probability, maybe now thinking that it's a 70% chance of heads. So the Bayesian approach allows us to update our prior beliefs so testing your attention here, the Bayesian approach allows us to update our prior belief given this new data so that we can find a new posterior probability. So keep that coin toss in mind. Let's think now about how this applies to our Eolia trial. Remember that with Eolia, with our frequentist analysis in the original trial, the authors went in with this fixed belief that ECMO was going to have a 20% difference in mortality. And since they weren't able to show that 20%, they weren't able to show statistical significance. With this Bayesian analysis, instead of going in with that fixed belief and trying to prove that 20%, the authors instead tried to ask themselves, what is the probability that ECMO will have benefit? So they looked at, they analyzed their data using a range of prior beliefs about ECMO's benefit, ranging from beliefs that were strongly enthusiastic about ECMO to strongly skeptical about ECMO. And across this range of prior beliefs, they looked at the posterior probability of achieving that target absolute risk reduction of 20%. They found that there was only a zero to 2% probability of achieving this, which means that Eolia never had a good chance of showing statistical significance based on its original design. The author, authors also looked at the probability of achieving a relative risk less than one, meaning that more, ECMO had mortality benefit compared to control. And they found that there was an 88 to 99% of this happening. Which means that given this Bayesian analysis of Eolia, even with the most strongly skeptical view of ECMO, it's very likely that ECMO has mortality benefit in severe ARDS. And just to hammer that point home, let's look beyond Eolia to this meta-analysis of ARDS. This study looked at 25 randomized controlled trials on almost 8,000 patients and evaluated the effect of nine different ARDS interventions. And they found that ECMO was one of the only interventions that was associated with decreased mortality compared to lung protective ventilation alone. So we have a pretty good body of evidence that shows us ECMO likely has mortality benefit in severe ARDS. On the other hand, we know that ECMO has risk and is very resource intensive, and so it's not something that we would initiate in all of our ARDS patients. So in clinical practice at the bedside, how do we choose those patients who are going to get ECMO? We can use pragmatic patient selection to choose those patients who would benefit. So the Respiratory ECMO Survival Prediction, or REST score, allows us to predict the survival for patients who are receiving ECMO for respiratory failure. And the creators of the score did a multivariable analysis of over 2,000 patients on ECMO, identifying what pre-ECMO variables shown here were associated with better or worse survival. Based on their combinations of these factors, patients get a REST score that tells what percent chance they have of surviving after they're cannulated for VD ECMO. So let's tie this back to CC. We're at the bedside now, we're deciding whether or not to cannulate. We know from Eolia and other evidence that ECMO will likely have a mortality benefit for his severe ARDS, but we don't know how much. So if we calculate a rest score for CC, we see that he has a 76% chance of surviving after ECMO. 
And there's no hard and fast cutoff for what percent chance warrants ECMO cannulation, and different institutions will have their own cutoffs as well. But in our case, the team decides to cannulate CC, and so he started on VV ECMO. So when we think about how to apply this beyond CC to our other patients, I want you to recall that regardless of what your role is, you can utilize the REF score and your knowledge of the ECMO literature to help identify those patients who could be considered for VV ECMO and start that conversation with whether we should bring in that ECMO consult. So now CC is cannulated for VV ECMO, and it took us a while to get here, but this is really just the start of his clinical picture. Now that we've initiated ECMO, we've introduced an entirely new compartment to CC, and that's going to alter his pharmacokinetics and therefore alter his medication dosing. I want to focus on his sedation management, which we know is going to be a key part of management in these critically ill patients. In CC's case, before he's cannulated for ECMO, he's at his sedation goal with fentanyl and propofol infusions. So how is ECMO and the addition of that circuit going to affect his sedation management? Are we going to have to change the dose, maybe the agent, maybe there will be no change at all? So to answer that question, we have to think about what pharmacokinetic and dynamic changes are happening in our patient. And those changes can be broken down as patient, circuit, or drug-related factors. We'll be focusing on the drug factors today, but just touching on the others quickly. With our patient-related factors, we know that our critically ill patients often have end-organ dysfunction, such as hepatic and renal insufficiencies, and that's going to affect our drug metabolism and elimination. Thinking about our circuit-related factors, multiple components of the ECMO circuit affect our drug kinetics. So things like the material of the tubing, the type of the pump or the oxygenator, and even the age of the circuit play a role in affecting drug kinetics. And finally, looking at how drug kinetics are altered in ECMO, we'll focus today on the volume of distribution and the drug sequestration. Looking at volume of distribution, or VD, ECMO increases our VD because it introduces an additional pharmacokinetic compartment, which then affects how our drugs distribute. If we think about our hydrophilic drugs, ECMO increases the, their VD through hemodilution. Before we use an ECMO circuit, we have to prime it, which means that we introduce it and fill it full of fluid called the priming solution. When that priming solution goes into our patient, it expands their plasma volume and thus decreases the concentration of their hydrophilic drugs. However, the degree of that hemodilution really depends on what the patient is, and it depends on how much of a relative increase it is compared to their native blood volume. So if we look at this chart here, we see that for a neonate, Introducing the ECMO prime volume might actually exceed what their native blood volume is, and for them, this is therefore a very large relative increase. As we move to a child, we see that they have more native blood volume, and so the ECMO priming volume is less of a relative increase for them. And looking at adults, this is really not a significant increase given their large native blood volume. And so this volume of distribution change for our hydrophilic drugs is really going to be more significant in our pediatric populations because of their lower native blood volume. One thing I'll note is that with newer ECMO technology, we're using smaller priming volumes than we have historically, and so this may be less of a consideration moving forward, but it's always important to consider the size of your patient and the size of the relative volume that you are introducing. ECMO also incre increases the VD of our lipophilic drugs, and this occurs through drug sequestration. So the ECMO circuit provides a large surface area for drugs to absorb and be sequestered to. And drugs that are, that are sequestered within the ECMO circuit have a functionally increased volume of distribution. There are two key factors that affect a drug's degree of sequestration, and those are its lipophilicity and its protein binding. When we think about lipophilicity, this is shown by the log p-value of a drug, with higher log p-values indicating higher lipophilicity and lower or negative log p-values indicating low lipophilicity or hydrophilicity. 
drugs that are more lipophilic are more soluble in the ECMO tubing, and so they're more sequestered within the drug circuit. On the protein binding side of things, we know that proteins and thus the drugs that bind to proteins are more likely to bind within the circuit. And so drugs that are highly protein bound are going to have a higher degree of sequestration within the circuit. If we put those factors together and think about what that's going to mean, drugs that are more lipophilic and more protein bound are going to have more sequestration within the ECMO circuit. And that means there's going to be more, there's going to be less drug that's delivered to our patient. So this might mean that we need higher doses of that drug to achieve the same clinical effect. So let's think about how these theoretical chemical principles tie into our sedative medications. When we look at the properties of our sedatives, we see that the large majority of our sedatives have high lipophilicity and high protein binding. So a lot of our key first-line agents like fentanyl, propofol, dexmedetomidine, they're all medications that have high lipophilicity and high protein binding. One exception to the trend here is hydromorphone and morphine, which we see are pretty, lipo, pretty hydrophilic medications with lower protein binding. But this is kind of the exception to the norm. And as a whole, looking at our common sedative agents, these are drugs that we would expect to be significantly sequestered within the ECMO circuit. So let's see if this theoretical chemical data actually plays out to a real world evidence. We'll start off by looking at this ex vivo or outside the body model. And this model looked at fentanyl, morphine, and midazolam injected into ECMO circuits compared to blood sample controls. Serial samples were measured over 24 hours to measure the drug concentrations. And after 24 hours, we found that fentanyl and midazolam were significantly lost in the circuit compared to the control, with 3% of fentanyl and 13% of midazolam remaining in the circuit. Morphine, however, was not significantly lost in the circuit or the control. And these findings make sense when we recall that fentanyl and midazolam are highly lipophilic, highly protein-bound medications compared to morphine, which is hydrophilic and has low protein binding. And so this ECMO, this ex vivo model seems to show and confirm our theory that our lipophilic, highly protein-bound medications are highly sequestered within the circuit with 90% loss in this study. Let's test this now in an in vivo model, looking inside the patient. This retrospective review of analogous sedation in our ECMO patients studied patients who were receiving fentanyl or hydromorphone. And the patients had similar baseline characteristics and had a similar level of sedation. The primary outcome that the authors studied was the opioid requirement at 48 hours after cannulation. They found that the fentanyl group had a higher opioid requirement than the hydromorphone group. And this was true at both 24 and 48 hours. So at the 48 hour mark, we can see the fentanyl group required 325 morphine equivalents compared to 168 in the hydromorphone. And so again, this seems to agree with our ex vivo and chemical data, telling us that fentanyl, a lipophilic protein bound medication is likely more sequestered in the circuit, which means we need more drug to achieve that same clinical effect. However, one strange thing about this finding that doesn't correlate is the degree of that drug increase. So remember in our ex vivo study, we lost 97% of the fentanyl, but in this study, there was only double the requirements of fentanyl compared to hydromorphone. So while the drug is getting sequestered, it's to a much lesser degree than we might expect from the ex vivo model. Why is this discrepancy happening? So we can explain this because we're introducing a major confounding factor, which is our patient. When we're looking at ex vivo studies, we're injecting drug directly into the circuit. And so the results that we see are purely an effect of a drug circuit interaction. 
in vivo at the bedside, we're injecting drug into the patient. And so that's going to introduce additional pharmacokinetic compartments. The drug now cycles between the patient and the circuit, and that pattern isn't going to be directly comparable to a pure ex vivo model. When we introduce our patient, we also now have to consider patient-specific factors, such as the, the critical illness factors we mentioned earlier, like augmented renal clearance, as well as factors such as pharmacogenomics, patient's age, and their previous opioid requirements. And so given the many factors that can affect the degree of the dose increase, we don't really have a given approach for how to dose sedation at ECMO. So how do we dose this at bedside? We really have to go back to the chemical properties of our molecules. So we know that our lipophilic and our protein-bound medications are likely going to have higher dosing needs in ECMO, while our hydrophilic and low-protein-bound medications likely won't have much change in their dosing requirements. And so one thing that we can do to simplify our management is use agents that have lower binding and lower lipophilicity to help eliminate that confounding factor. However, if we are using those medications that are protein-bound or lipophilic, we'll know that we need higher doses. We shouldn't empirically increase the dose given the many factors that affect the degree of that dose increase, but we should up-titrate knowing that we'll need a higher dose and titrate to effect. We'll also want to monitor closely for side effects because we're using higher doses than normal. And it'll be critical to constantly reassess these patients, knowing that in critical illness, patient status changes already, and ECMO is now introducing a lot more confounding factors and moving pieces. So now let's tie this together with a review question. Which of the following medications is most likely to be sequestered within an ECMO circuit? Yeah, looks like I've hammered this point home. So I agree with the, the entirety of the audience, which is that a lipophilic and highly protein-bound medication is likely to be sequestered. And the other options are incorrect because they suggest low protein binding or hydrophilicity, which we know are factors that make a medication less likely to be sequestered. So let's wrap up this section by tying this back to CC. We just cannulated him. We know that he's at sedation goal before cannulation with fentanyl and propofol. And now we know that these are lipophilic and highly protein bound medications. So there are a couple of different ways that we can manage his sedation. One option is to continue his current regimen, know that we'll need higher doses, and up-titrate to effect. But what I would prefer doing instead is changing his fentanyl to hydromorphone, which is a drug that we know won't be sequestered in the ECMO circuit. So with hydromorphone, we'll be able to use relatively normal doses compared to fentanyl when we would need to use those higher doses. So using hydromorphone lets us eliminate that compounding factor, simplify CC's management, and use less drug overall. While there's no one correct way to manage sedation and ECMO, as we said, you just always make, want to make sure that whatever approach you're using, it goes back to the chemical properties of your molecules and the evidence that we have to support that. So now that we have CC sedation figured out, let's move on to the last part of his case today, which is going to be management of his antibiotics. Just like our sedatives, our antibiotic pharmacokinetics could be altered when we introduce the external ECMO circuit. But unlike our sedatives, with most antibiotics, we can't simply titrate to effect. And so it's really important that we have a strong understanding of the chemical properties of our antibiotics and what dosing changes that might require. In CC's case, prior to ECMO cannulation, he's receiving vancomycin and cefepime. So let's think now about how ECMO is going to affect his antibiotic management. Let's go back again to the chemical properties of the antibiotics. We know that in these critically ill patients, we wanna choose empiric antibiotics that are going to have a predictable effect. And so let's choose to use those antibiotics that have low lipophilicity and binding to have that predictable clinical effect. 
We can see from this table that a lot of the empiric options that we would go to reach for actually have the chemical properties that we would want. So if you look at cefepime, piperacillin, tazobactam, meropenem, and vancomycin, these antibiotics all have low lipophilicity and low protein binding. Ceftriaxone is a bit of an exception here as it has higher protein binding, but it does still have that low hydro, has that low lipophilicity. And so overall, based on this table, we would expect that these medications would not be significantly sequestered in the ECMO circuit. So let's go through that same process and check what evidence we have to support that. Starting off with our ex vivo model, once again, we're injecting our antibiotics this time. So ceftriaxone, cefepime, piperacillin, and vancomycin into ECMO circuits compared to blood sample controls. And unsurprisingly, based on the PK factors that we just talked about, there's a very similar remaining concentration in the circuit compared to the control. One exception is that subtriaxone has a slight reduction, likely due to its higher protein binding. But for the most part, looking at these beta-lactams and vancomycin, we see that because of their chemical properties, we don't have much loss or sequestration in the circuit in the ex vivo model. If we correlate that with our in vivo evidence, we'll start off by looking at beta-lactams. So this matched case control study included critically ill adults who were receiving meropenem or piperacillin tazobactam. And the study excluded patients with severe burns, pregnancy, or cystic fibrosis, and this was intended to help eliminate any confounding factors that could also significantly change drug kinetics. Of the patients who were enrolled, ECMO patients were matched to non-ECMO patients based on their antibiotic regimen, their renal function, their weight, their severity of illness, and their age. And patients received standard doses of meropenem or piptazo that were given as intermittent doses over 30-minute infusions. The authors found that there were no clinically significant differences between the ECMO group and the non-ECMO group looking at their antibiotic pharmacokinetic parameters. And so this in vivo evidence, again, correlates with our ex vivo evidence and our chemical evidence, telling us that our hydrophilic beta-lactams likely do not need a dose change in ECMO because they're not sequestered. Let's check the box again with vancomycin, looking at that now in vivo. So in this prospective matched cohort study, critically ill patients receiving vancomycin um, were looked at for their PK parameters. Patients were excluded if they were receiving renal replacement therapy, if they had acute injury, kidney injury, and if they had severe burns. And once again, this was done with the intent of helping to isolate or remove those confounding factors that could also significantly affect our pharmacokinetics. ECMO patients were then matched to non-ECMO patients based on their age, their gender, and their renal function. And patients received intermittent vancomycin with standard doses and trough goals. Once again, the authors found that there were no clinically significant differences between our ECMO group and our non-ECMO group when you study their vancomycin pharmacokinetics. And so our overall body of evidence so far shows us that for these hydrophilic, low-protein-bound antibiotics, ECMO doesn't significantly affect their kinetics, and so we can get away with using the same doses that we would use in patients who are not on ECMO. But that said, there is one class of beta-lactams that we still haven't looked closely at, and that is our carbapenems. So let's look at this ex vivo model of meropenem. Meropenem is injected into our ECMO circuit and our blood samples. And after 24 hours, the authors found that there was only 20% of drug left in the circuit and only 42% of drug left in the control. So these findings raise a lot of questions. First of all, the difference of the drug loss in the circuit is confusing and doesn't correlate with what we know based on meropenem's chemical properties. We know meropenem has low lipophilicity and low protein binding, and so we would not expect it to be sequestered within the circuit. 
The other thing that's strange here is the high degree of drug loss, even within the control. And so these factors indicate that there must be something else going on with our carbapenems. Something is that carbapenems are inherently unstable at physiological temperature, and so drugs are degraded at that temperature. This explains the over 50% loss we saw even in the control circuit. The ECMO circuit further degradates the further accelerates the degradation of these drug molecules, and that accounts for why we saw that increased level of loss within the circuit. We have really limited in vivo data to tell us how much these ex vivo studies play out to clinical practice and warrant a dosing change. So the data that looks at meropenem and our other carbapenems is really limited, and there's a lot of heterogeneity in the dosing strategies that were used. And so in my practice, based on this ex vivo evidence, the limited in vivo evidence, and the likely clinical severity of the situation if we're reaching for meropenem, I would actually change meropenem's dosing a little bit in ECMO, unlike those antibiotics that we talked about earlier. For meropenem, I might consider using optimized dosing strategies like an extended infusion or uh, lower frequency of use um, to ensure that we're getting the pharmacodynamics that we need in these ECMO patients. So looking at our big picture of antibiotics with low level felicity and low binding in ECMO, we know that ECMO minimally affects the kinetics of these drugs, and so we can use similar dosing strategies as you would use in critical illness without ECMO. One caveat that I'll say here is that these patients are often very complex and may have other pharmacokinetic parameters that themselves warrant a dose increase, but ECMO itself generally will not require that increase. We can, however, consider optimized dosing strategies in our ECMO patients in unique situations like if we're using carbapenems or if our patients are really having a suboptimal response and decompensating. And finally, we can consider using therapeutic drug monitoring. And while this isn't necessary or available at all institutions, this can be valuable because it gives us an additional piece of evidence to use in our patients. So let's apply this to one more question today and look back at CC. So we know that prior to ECMO cannulation, his infection was improving with standard doses of vancomycin and cepapim. So after ECMO cannulation, how should his antibiotic dosing be changed? So I agree with the majority of responses here, which is to continue the current doses of vancomycin and cefepime. We know that these are both medications that are both hydrophilic and have low protein binding, and so we wouldn't affect them to be significantly changed. We wouldn't expect them to be significantly changed in ECMO, which means that we can treat this question as if CC is not on ECMO. Given his clinical improvement on his current regimen, it makes sense to continue him at his current dose. Options B and C are incorrect because they suggest increasing the vancomycin dose or the cefepime dose, and the, that is not indicated at this time based on its clinical status and based on our knowledge that ECMO is not expected to change the kinetics of these drugs. And finally, option D is incorrect because we wouldn't switch to antibiotics with lower lipophilicity and protein binding, knowing that vancomycin and cefepime already meet those criteria. So we've talked a lot today about how ECMO, uh, about how to dose um, some common bedside medications that I want you to know, like our common sedatives and our empiric antibiotics. But I also want to leave you with an approach for what to do when you encounter medications we haven't talked about today. So maybe an antimicrobial that is highly lipophilic and highly protein bound. In situations like that, how do we apply the evidence to dose that drug X? We'll walk through the same process we did today, where the first thing you should do is assess the pharmacokinetic information you have available. So just like we talked about with sedatives and antimicrobials, look at the chemical properties and think about the drug's lipophilicity and protein binding. Then study what ex vivo evidence and in vivo evidence you have. Compare those different sources of pharmacokinetic information and see whether they correlate or not. 
And if they don't, try to reconcile the reasons for those discrepancies. So today, we saw an apparent discrepancy between the ex vivo evidence for meropenem compared to what we know of its chemical properties. But we were able to reconcile that with the information that carbapenems are unstable at physiological temperature. Finally, based on your steps one and two, determine what level of evidence you have in your data. So if you have multiple sources of data that correlate, or you have explanations for why they don't correlate, then you can have a higher level of evidence when you're using that drug in ECMO. If, on the other hand, you have really limited or very contradictory evidence, then this would be a medication that we may not be as comfortable using in ECMO at this time. And so as ECMO becomes more and more uh, commonly used in practice, and as we get more and more drug data, we can come back to this algorithm to know how best to dose our patients. Some take-home points from today. Remember, you can use the REF score to identify patients who may benefit from venovenous ECMO. For those patients who we do start ECMO on, try to use medications that have lower lipophilicity and protein binding, knowing that these are less likely to be sequestered within the ECMO circuit. With our sedative medication, knowing that a lot of our sedatives are lipophilic and protein bound, we know we'll have to up titrate to effect, but we'll be monitoring closely for side effects and constantly reassessing those patients. And finally, for our antibiotics with low lipophilicity and protein binding, we know we can use similar dosing as we would use in critical illness without ECMO. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.